Revelation chapter 2 verse 8 is where we begin tonight. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. And uh, let's open up with a word of prayer tonight, shall we? Uh, Father, we uh, come before you tonight and, and Father, on our hearts tonight, we just pray for this young wife and mother who lost her husband on Sunday, Gwen. And, uh, Father, we ask for comfort for her and her entire family uh, during the loss uh, of her husband. And, um, Lord, we just pray that you would give us as a church and for those that know uh, the Silva family, uh, Lord, just uh, the opportunity to comfort them. Lord, there's certainly nothing that we can say that makes anything like this better at a time like this, but we can pray for them, and we can just be there to cry with them and to wrap our arms of love around them as we know you are as well. And so, Lord, just help us to love them through this very, very difficult and horrific time in their life. And, uh, Father, I just pray you would give me your words to say uh, to those that will be there on Saturday at that funeral service. Uh, just help me to share the the love of Christ and the hope that we have in Christ that day. And Father, I, I pray for our time together tonight in the Word, that once again you would override my human frailty and, uh, and, and failings, and Lord, that you would speak through me and just use me in a great way to encourage these folks tonight through your Word and to, to refresh them in your Word and to just build us up in the Word and to get us closer to you each and every day. Father, one of the great promises of your word is to draw near to you, and you will draw near to us. And Father, we want to draw near to you tonight, and we want to sense your nearness in our lives, and your presence, and your power right here in this room, uh, Father, as we go through this evening. And uh, Lord, then on Sunday, I just pray that this message that you have just burdened my heart with, Father, would just come through in the right way on Sunday, and again, would just be... A real encouragement, Lord, to all who will be here on Sunday at those three services. And Father, just go with us now throughout the rest of this evening. And again, just bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're in the midst here of studying the book of Revelation. And as I shared early on, you, you don't have to be here every week. Each message is going to be able to stand on its own. But just as a quick review... Let's remember that this is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this book is revealing Him and unveiling Him in all His glory. We're used to getting that picture in our minds of the Jesus who walked the earth and who healed the lame and who healed the blind and who went to the cross and died for our sins. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let's remember He is the eternal living Son of God. And, and the book of Revelation portrays him that way. He is the glorified Christ who is now at the right hand of God the Father and is in complete control of everything that is going on here on earth. And he is bringing about his plan and his purpose for planet earth and for all who are on planet earth. And that's part of what the book of Revelation is about. But never forget, through all the events and all the messages to the churches that we're reading about and studying about in the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is the very center and the very backdrop of this entire book. He is the one we need to be focusing on, and that's true tonight. Because again, in these messages, to the church... He is writing to the church because he established the church. The church was not man's idea. The church was Christ's idea. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the book of Ephesians, he is the head of the church. He is to be the one who is the leader of the church. Even we who, in a sense, are pastors or leaders within the church are simply under shepherds, in a sense. He is the shepherd. He is to be the leader, and we are all to take our cue from Him. It is His church, and we are to defer to Him all the time. And He has a concern and a care for His church. Remember, He wants His church to be a lighthouse, a lampstand in the community in which He's placed it. And that's why the church in the book of Revelation is referred to as a lampstand or a lighthouse. He wants us to shine forth the light of Christ to all who need to see the hope and the love in Christ, that they still need to come to that. And so we've talked about that. Now last week we, we came through that first church, the message to the church at Ephesus, and we talked about that. 
And I was sharing with a few folks today that we've sort of been going at, at about five miles an hour, if you will, as far as the accelerator goes throughout the book of Revelation. We're going to speed it up a little bit, okay? We're going to start going about 15 miles an hour through the book of Revelation, and we're not going to have to just stop at one church. We're going to go a little bit faster because a lot of the foundation with the book of Ephesus that we talked about last week is really carried through the rest of the messages to the seven churches. So with that in mind, let's look at chapter 2, verse 8, as Jesus begins to talk to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead but came to life. Now, first of all, I want to just spend a few moments talking about the uniqueness of the church at Smyrna and its location and what it means because, again, God in his wisdom ties in what he's saying to them based upon where they are and what's important to them. The church, or the city of Smyrna was known for what it produced and its primary production was what was called myrrh. That's how it got its name. Smyrna came from myrrh. And if you know anything about the Christmas story, all of a sudden you go, hmm, myrrh. One of the gifts of the three wise men, nobody caught that, was it? Okay, we'll go back. Okay, all right. One of the gifts of the wise men was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And myrrh is a perfume. And myrrh was used in the embalming of the dead. It was also just used as a perfume. It was a very good-smelling perfume. But here's the key. In order to get that great fragrance that myrrh got, it had to be literally the resin from this plant had to be crushed and put through a lot of pressure in order for that really sweet fragrance to come out. Okay? Now keep that in mind as we go down through here because Jesus is going to tie that concept of myrrh, which was very familiar to the people in Smyrna, a little bit later on here in the message. You'll also notice that he reminds them that he was dead and now he's come back to life. And what he's reminding them of and what he's reminding us of is this. Listen, I've went through the absolute worst thing you could ever go through. I've went through death and I conquered death and therefore... I can, I can identify with anything and everything you go through because the worst thing a human being could go through is death, and I've been there. In fact, you know, he's been through the physical suffering. Uh, anybody who's ever been betrayed or had a friend turn their back on him, Jesus knows what that's like. He had a Judas in his life. I mean, he's been through everything, okay? So he understands, and what he is saying to his church and he's saying to us is, listen, I've been there. I've been through the worst that life can bring, but I have overcome it. And therefore, I am offering myself as the one who can aid you and help you and comfort you in all of life's trials and tribulations because I have been there. In fact, keep your finger in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and just go back a few books of the Bible through Jude and First and Second and Third John and First and Second Peter and James and come to the book of Hebrews again. You knew I was going to go to the book of Hebrews, didn't you? Because that's my favorite book of the Bible. And come to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. And you want to talk about a passage you should mark in your Bible, or even if you want to feel real energetic, you want to memorize all three of these verses, that would be great. But this is a great passage of Scripture that talks about how Jesus is our helper. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, a, a mediator, who has passed through the heavens, because he ascended to the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let's not give up. Let's not throw in the towel. Let's continue to trust and believe in God. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. Remember, he was 100% man as well as 100% God. He knows what it's like to be thirsty, to be hungry, to suffer hurt, to suffer need, all of that. Okay, He knows we're but dust. He can sympathize. You ever want to look around for somebody who can sympathize with you? Look no further than Jesus. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who also was tempted in every way, just as we are, the only distinction is yet without sin. Unlike us, who at times give in to the temptation, 
Jesus Christ never gave in to the temptation. Therefore, though, verse 16 says this, because we have such a great high priest who is sympathetic, who is compassionate, who has a concern for us, therefore let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. You see, a lot of people have the concept that God's throne is to be feared and that God's throne is this, whoa, you know, this place that we don't want to go. But the Bible portrays God's throne as a place of grace, a place where we can come before Him and find mercy and find help when we need it at any time. And that's why verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 is like one of the great verses in the Bible that encourages us to pray. Because it's simply saying, you know, folks, Whenever it's getting, you know, you're struggling, whatever, just come before the throne of God and He'll give you the grace and the help and the mercy that we need when we need it at any time. You know, He never sleeps. He never takes a day off. He's never on vacation. God is always there. He's been through the very worst, the Bible says, and yet He's come out on the other side and He is there to aid us and to help us. And you'll be hearing this again on Sunday morning. (laughs) All right, we'll be talking a little bit about that. So back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. I'm just going to continue down through here just a moment before I open it up for questions or comments. Then we come to verse 9. I know the distress you are suffering. And the word that Jesus uses for distress is the word crushing pressure. Hmm. The same thing that the people of Smyrna are very familiar with because they understand it. That is that crushing pressure that produces that tremendously powerful and good fragrance they call myrrh. And what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, look, I know you're under tremendously crushing pressure, but that doesn't mean that you can't give off a very sweet fragrance. In fact, sometimes that pressure produces. It's what really sets off the fragrance. I would say it this way. You and I all know that there's times in our life or times in other people's life, the worst of times, and it's either going to bring out the worst in people or the best in people. And Jesus here is simply saying, when that crushing pressure of life comes, I am hoping that my church, I am praying that my church will leave off a sweet fragrance, a very nice perfume, if you will, And it will bring out the very best in you rather than bring out the worst in you. Because God is going to allow that crushing pressure not to destroy us, not to to discourage us, but to strengthen us and to allow what's really inside of us sometimes to come out that would never come out if that pressure would not be applied. You could sort of even use this uh, an, an analogy or illustration like when you, you know, would be into like heavy physical training or whatever, you know, the, the, the physical trainers or whatever, they or the coaches or whatever, they, they push and they push and they push because they understand that there's more inside of us than what we think there is. And, and we've got to get that out. But in order to get that out, sometimes we are pushed to our very limit and we realize that we're going beyond a bound that we never thought. It's like the marathon runner that hits what's called that wall. And he's got to push through or she's got to push through that wall and then they can just continue on running further than they ever thought they could run. One of the things that God knows is that God knows in each of us that we can go a lot further than we think we can. And that our potential is a lot further down the road than what we think. We limit ourselves because we look at ourselves strictly from our own eyes or from a human perspective or what other people have said to us. And like I shared last week, We believe the lies we tell ourselves. We have believed over the years the lies that other people have told us. And we've allowed either ourselves or others to define who we are and what we have become rather than allowing God alone to define who we are and what we become. And God is saying, sometimes I'm going to put you under that crushing pressure because in that moment, you're going to find out that you could go a lot further, you could go a lot higher you could could do more than you ever thought you could do with Of course, my help, going back to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and speaking about, you know, funerals or whatever, I can give a personal testimony. I think I've shared this before in here. My father was my best friend. 
My father died 15 years ago of pancreatic cancer, and I did my father's funeral, and people were saying, how could you do your father's funeral? And I said, well, I didn't. I said, the only way I could get up there and do my father's funeral was because God enabled me to go beyond what I could have ever went on myself. And that's what God wants to show us. God wants to show you that you can do way more. And you can be used of God way further than you think you can. And sometimes it takes that crushing pressure of a situation to realize there's more inside of me when God is enabling me and strengthening me and helping me than I ever dreamed there was. That's what he's reminding the Smyrna's of. He's saying, you, I know that you are under this crushing pressure and you are suffering. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, and I know your poverty. And there's a couple different words that Christ could have used for poverty, okay, or to be poor. And he uses the the most absolute lowest word he could use. It's a word that means absolute destitution. It means that these people have pretty much absolutely nothing. They are, they're not just poor. They just, you know, they're destitute. It is the absolute word for the poorest of the poor. So they're under this crushing pressure, and they're absolutely destitute, and yet notice what Christ goes on to say in verse 9. But you are rich. My goodness. These people are under crushing pressure, and they're destitute, but Christ's evaluation of them, but don't forget, folks in Smyrna, you're rich is because he is reminding us that his church and you and I cannot be judged by externals. You see, material goods really have no ultimate eternal value. And so he's saying, I realize what you're going through. You're under a tremendously crushing pressure situation. But you know what? It's bringing out the best in you. And you're able to be a great light for me. One of the interesting things about his message to Smyrna, you remember last week I said almost every message that he gives to the seven churches in Revelation have a balance of commendation and correction, where they've done some things good, and then he has to correct them of some things that they've done that they're not doing very well. The church at Smyrna has no correction at all. And I have a feeling that that's partly because... They were suffering so much, and yet that suffering really purified the church. It it, it really made the church strong to the point where Jesus had no correction to give to the church at Smyrna. Yeah, they were suffering, they were going through it, but my friends, they were rising to the occasion, not in their own power and strength, but in the grace of God, in the strength that God supplied. Man, they were going way beyond what they could imagine. And Jesus here then again is reminding us that knowledge of this fact that that material goods really have no eternal value should bring about a shift in priorities towards spiritual things that are truly lasting rather than material temporal things that we can't take with us. Which goes back to the fact that I've shared in this class before that remember something, there's only two things in this life that we're ever going to come in contact with that are eternal. The Word of God, the Bible, is eternal, and people. The soul of human beings, that's eternal. Everything else that we come in contact with on the earth is not going to last. So any time that I spend in the Word of God, any time that I spend positively impacting another human being, I'm making an eternal investment. And what did Jesus say? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Rather than treasures on the earth, Paul said in Colossians 3.1, set your affection on things above, not things on the earth. And again, don't, what he's saying to us, yeah, you're on the earth, but don't become earth dwellers. Realize you're just passing through, you're just sojourners. This is just a temporary assignment here. This is not our ultimate home. This is not our ultimate destiny. Our ultimate destiny is glory with Christ, the Christ of Revelation in heaven for all of eternity. So let's not get so focused on earthly, temporal things. Let's keep our focus on spiritual treasures and on eternal things rather than on... And again, that's brought out here in the fact that this church was under this crushing pressure and this church was absolutely destitute, 
But Christ's evaluation was, no, you're rich. Rich. Rich in spiritual wealth. Rich in eternal wealth. Rich in things that when these people from Smyrna left this earth to go to be with the Lord in heaven, there was going to be unbelievable reward and riches up there waiting on them. Even though they had very little of this world's goods down here on the earth. Wow, I mean, there's a message right there. We could just take the rest of the night and we could just talk about that concept that Jesus here is bringing out here. But it just reminds us of something. A principle that we're going to see throughout our study of the book of Revelation, especially in the message to the churches, and that is that man's estimate of others, and that man's estimate or the world's estimate of the church can be totally different than God's estimate of people in the church. Because again, what does the Bible say? The Bible says man looks at the outward appearance only. You know, man judges things by how things look externally. But the Bible says God goes deeper than that. And that's what he was doing here. There was much more to that church than what man could perceive with his eyes. And the same thing is true for you folks. You know, the world looks at you, maybe, and you even maybe look at yourself as, oh, I'm just... Whoever, so I'm just Jeff Royce, no big deal. And God is saying to you tonight, no, 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 you don't understand. You are of unbelievable value to me, and you have such great potential, and I want to use your life, and you don't realize what a positive impact you can make in this world, and you've just, you just got to believe that I could take you further and farther and higher than you ever imagined. You see, we have to allow God to, to find that and not allow ourselves to put ourselves in that box or others to put ourselves in that box. And that's what he was commending the Smyrnans for. Yeah, you're, I'm allowing this crushing pressure, but it's bringing out the best in you. You're absolutely destitute, but you, you're rich as far as spiritual things go. And we need to remember that at times. Now again, because most of us in America today will never know this kind of poverty, uh, you know, it's hard for us, because let's face it, a lot of times our biggest thing is we have to go the other way, and when Jesus says, beware of covetousness, and be content with what you have, rather than always, you know, wanting something else, that those are more the verses that apply to us, but certainly a verse like this reminds us, okay, is our focus more on the eternal investment, or is it more on the temporal, uh, earthly investments, and that's what these verses can really begin to you know, get our thinking going in the right way and re realign our priorities, if you will, in our life. All right. Before we go on to verse 10, <laughs> comments, questions. Yes. I notice in, in, uh, in here all, these, all these passages are in red. Mm -hmm. This is post This is Jesus right? speaking. Yeah, but this so is Jesus coming, speaking. He's, he's coming to these people as a spirit or an angel type of thing. Yeah, I think for the crucifixion, right? Right, and I think what he did is again he, in a, in a sense, gave sent himself in a vision to John, the guy who actually, you know, wrote the book, and then John passed it on to these messengers, and then the messengers took it to the church. Yeah, but I think Jesus appeared to John and, and told him in chapter one, "These are the things I want you to write." Yeah, but this is the glorified Christ, and if you do have a Bible that has the words of Christ in red, you will probably see where all of chapter 2 and 3 pretty much is, is in red. Because Christ is the one speaking. He is the one in the midst of the church. Yes, sir? I, I just, um, why does he reference just a single angel for church as opposed to, uh, you know, angels of, of this church? I think my understanding of that, and, and again, you know, I'm limited, I, but... We get tripped up on that word angel. The word angel technically is just defined as a messenger. So when we think the word angel's thrown in there, automatically we think of those angels, you know? I personally do not take it as, a, as an angel. I see no reason why God would have this angel deliver this message to the church. I think it refers more to a human messenger that after John wrote these letters, that he handed this off to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, the messenger that was going to take these letters to the church at Smyrna, 
And they were the human messenger that was going to deliver this letter. So it was one messenger that was going to take this message from Christ through John to the church. And let me give you a biblical precedent for that. A couple weeks ago I shared with you that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one who said, prepare the way of the Lord, you know, he is called the messenger there. But if you read a Greek New Testament, it is the word angelos, angel. Angel is sometimes translated angel, depending again on the context, and sometimes it's translated messenger. Here, for whatever reason, the translators decided to keep it angel rather than messenger like they would do other times. And I'm just saying to you that in my study, I think that the word messenger would have been a better translation, especially for us that so used to angel being just that one thing rather than another thing. It's not a different Greek word. It's the same word. It just has a couple different meanings. So the, the thing is, though, it, it was meant to be toward that singular person as opposed to all the people of the church, right? Because all the, the people of the church are messengers also, right? You know, with the, the word of God. Oh, yes. But, I, but what I'm saying is I think that Jesus gave this message to John to a messenger and then that single messenger went back to the church and probably read that message before the church, the entire church, when they met next. As an encouragement to the entire church. You're right, everybody in the church should be a, a messenger, going forth, shining our light or whatever. But I think the one messenger was responsible for taking that message back to the church and making sure that the church got that message. And I think that's why... You'll, you'll find there, Jesus a lot of times throughout chapter 2 and 3 talks about having these angels in his hand. It, it's a sign of protection that as these angels, as these messengers were traveling to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to all these different geographical regions around Southeast Asia there, which is mostly modern day Turkey, that they were going to be protected and that Jesus was going to make sure that these messengers got the message back to the churches so that they could hear what Christ had to say. Yeah. But the other neat thing is, as we're studying this, that these messages, and that's why I shared, I think there's seven, these messages to these churches thousands of years ago have application for us today. That's what makes the Bible God's word, because it's not something that was just applicable to the church at Ephesus or the church at Smyrna. It's something that we, as the church today, can learn from and can apply to our own lives if we study it. And that's, that's what makes the word of God just so awesome. You know, it never loses its relevance. It is relevant, as relevant today as it was when it was written. Just amazing book. Good stuff. Any other stuff? Yes? Uh, out of curiosity, last week you mentioned that the church of Ephesus was not still around. Right. Is the church of Smyrna or any of the other seven? Yes, the church at Smyrna is still around. Yeah, there's a few. It's a small church, you know, not the size of Cornerstone, but it, it's still there. Yeah. The other church that's still around is the church of Philadelphia, and I don't mean Pennsylvania. There are churches in Philadelphia, but yeah. And it's interesting because if you study, and we're going to go through this, that the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia were the only churches out of the seven that Jesus did not have any word of correction to. They were the only two churches out of the seven that he commended only and had no word of correction to, and they are the only churches to this day that still have a vibrant group of believers who are shining the light of Christ in those those communities? Yeah. Now I and I'm not sure. Now, this is where I'm going beyond Bible. I'm going to geography and stuff. Smyrna is not called Smyrna anymore, and Philadelphia is not called Philadelphia anymore. They've changed their names over you know the course of history. So I would have to go back and you know if you want to research that, but they're not called Smyrna or Philadelphia anymore. They've come up with more you know modern names throughout you know so. But yes, they're still there. I'm sure this is unanswerable, but I think it must be kind of cool. spent John spent three years with Jesus on his earthly ministry, and then years later, here comes Jesus and said, hi, John again. Do you think there any reason why he picked John? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, he was the only one left at that time, too. Yeah, he would have been the last disciple that was alive. You know, they they most of them would have been martyred. Uh, but again, why that was? You remember back at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus told 
Peter and John how they were going to sort of, or how Peter was going to die, and Peter's sort of like, well, what about John? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the, the implication was there that Jesus even said to Peter, well, Peter, if, if I don't want him to die, what's that to you? You know, in other words, you know, I, I've got a plan for your life, and, and my plan for John's life isn't the same. And yeah, John was allowed by God to live the longest of, of all the disciples. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. He had a, a very close relationship. If you remember from the 12 disciples, that not all of them had the same uh, relationship with Christ. Uh, Peter, James, and John, those three were sort of the inner circle of Christ. Uh, the ones that went on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the ones that, that would go with him maybe uh, other places. And then out of that, of course, uh, Peter and John are probably the, the most well-known. You know, I've even had Christians say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Because it almost is like, well, isn't Jesus playing favorites out of his disciples? But what you have to understand is, I think, personally, that these were not men necessarily that Jesus picked, as much as it was they were the ones who wanted to go further with Jesus. It just, just like today in the church, okay? We're all at different levels of our spiritual maturity. And you can even have two people who come to know Christ at the very same time, but if you look at those same two people a year later, they're not going to be on the same exact level spiritually. Why? Because one person is going to have taken more opportunity to advance themselves spiritually than the other person. And to me, that's what Peter, James, and John did. You know, while the other disciples might have been sleeping or taking some time off, which is fine, Peter, James, and John may have said, hey, Jesus, can we, can we spend a little extra time with you? Can we go here with you? Can we? They initiated it. One of the things we learn in the Bible is that you've got to learn to pursue. You know, pursue your leader. Uh, that's what David's mighty men, what, what made them mighty men. If you study the Old Testament, you study the concept of David's mighty men and what made them such great men, they always were pursuing David. They didn't wait till David had his calendar. I said, well, I can squeeze you in here next week at this. They were pursuing him. They were, they were making the appointment. They were asking him, when can you get together with me? They didn't leave it up to the leader to get together with them. They pursued him. And I believe the same principle was true with Peter, James, and John, and with John, and with all of them. It wasn't that Jesus had favorites and said, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to be closer to this guy than this guy. That's not true even in our church. But in this church... If you want to spend more time with Christ than, than I do, he's certainly not going to say, oh, no, no, you can't do that. He's going to welcome it. And you're going to get the benefit of that, and I'm going to lose out because you're spending more time with Christ. You're, you're having more fellowship with him, and that's going to show up in your spiritual walk. You know? Was John the youngest among the disciples? I think one of the youngest, if not the youngest, yeah. He was, he was really the little, you know, yeah, the child, if you will, of the group, yeah. But yet, again, just like with us, notice the potential. Jesus always sees our potential. And it's not what we were that matters, it's what we can become. And that's why it doesn't matter when you come to Christ in your life, remember the important thing with God is not how you start the race, it's how you finish. It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. That's why Paul would say, I fought a good fight, I finished the course, I kept the faith. The important thing is how you finish the race, and God wants us to finish this race of life and faith strong in Him. And that's what's really important, because let's face it, not all of us got on board with Christ at the same time, and a lot of us can look back and say, boy, I, but you know what? Just like Paul, what did Paul say in the book of Philippians? i got to put that behind me. I can't let that drag me down. I'm putting all those things in my past behind me, and now I'm just going to singularly focus on Christ and on learning about Him and in growing, and I'm just going to take my life from the time I came to Christ on up. Yes, somebody, yes. I have a question. Did you say John was the youngest that probably suffered the most? Well, I think a lot of them suffered. Uh, again, you know, history pretty much confirms the fact that Peter was crucified upside down and... And uh, many of all the disciples, for the most part, you know, died for their faith and was martyred, uh, was was killed, murdered for for their faith. Uh, 
John certainly was suffering even before, you know, he, he met death. Because, again, yeah, he, in the very first chapter, says, I'm on the Isle of Patmos, which was a Roman penal colony, uh, because of the testimony of Christ. Uh, so he was working in the mines there on Patmos as basically a Roman prisoner uh, for many years uh, before he passed away. And I don't know exactly how he passed away. Yeah, that, that's another, you know, his, I don't know exactly who that was, but yeah, that, I certainly believe that many of Christ's disciples suffered fates like that. That was a common, common way of torture, torturous death back then. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing what, uh, you know what that tells me though? They were convinced of what they believed in. They were convinced of what they believed And that's what I share with people. Look. You've got to be fully persuaded in your mind. You've got to come to your own convictions about Christ and about his word and live out your convictions. That's what Christ wants from all of us. It's not to live off the pastor's convictions and my parents' convictions and my friends' convictions. It's to develop my own convictions based upon my own personal time in God's word and coming up with what I believe. Because if I'm living what somebody else believes, eh, that's not going to get me very far. I'm not going to stand very, very strong for that. But if it's what I believe, I'm going to stand strong for it to the point of I'll even be willing to die for it, which is what we're going to see from the church at Smyrna. All right? Let's go back there real quick, because this is interesting. In verse 9, I know the distress you are suffering, your poverty, but you're rich. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and are really not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa! Jesus is uh, not mincing any words there, is he? couple things. Jesus is saying, you know what? You folks at Smyrna are so special to me. And I, I again, I know you're being slandered. You ever been slandered? <laughs> I'm sure we could all say that. Do you know what the word devil means? Slanderer. The devil is the original slanderer, and the Bible says that that's one of his main focuses. He's out to slander us. The Bible says in the book of Revelation later on that he's the accuser of the, of the brethren. He's always trying to discourage us and beat us down and destroy us and slander us and gossip and, and stir up all that. And I, I just stop there for a moment because... If you've ever been on the other side of slander, and you know how hurtful it is, one practical application we can take from this is this. May we never be a slanderer. May we never be involved with gossip. May we never be involved in what the Bible calls tail-bearing and passing negative information. May we be careful about being critical of others. Because all of that really is more what the devil is like than what Christ is like. We've got to be careful. The devil, the word devil, is slanderer. And, and Jesus is saying, this group of Jews who call themselves Jews and are slandering you, my church, they're, they're not really Jews. They're the synagogue of Satan. And what Jesus is pointing out here is this. He says, look, folks, there, there's, a, there's a lot in the Bible that's not black and white, and there's a lot in our world and Christianity even that's not black and white, but here's one thing that is black and white. Jesus stood up one day as he was ministering on this earth, and he said, he who is not with me is against me. That's black and white. You can't get any more black and white than that. Jesus said, if you're not with me, if you're not for me, then you're against me, because there's no such thing as neutrality with Christ. You can't be neutral. There's nobody that's going to get to, to the eternal state one day and say, well, Jesus, I just couldn't make up my mind whether I was for you or against you. That doesn't cut it. There, there is no such thing as neutrality. That's why Pilate, if you study that whole passage where Pilate's trying to pass off his responsibility because he really does believe that Jesus is innocent, but Jesus wouldn't allow him to be neutral. He had to come down one side or the other. And every human being has to come down on one side or the other with Jesus. And what Jesus here is pointing out by making that statement is simply this. 
They can claim that they are for me. They can claim that they are a synagogue of God-fearing Jews, but I'm telling you, because of their actions and their behavior of slandering my people, you and the church at Smyrna, who are so dear to me, they're not operating from me. They're operating under the influence and power of Satan himself, and they are being used by him as his instruments. They're not my instruments, because my instruments would never treat you that way. Wow, that, that's powerful. But that's the way it is. As I shared with you last week, one of the reasons why we have to test the spirits is because, remember, Jesus said, and John says, either the spirit is going to tra- be traced back to, to the origin of Satan and, and coming from, from Satan, or it can be traced back to God. There's, well, there's only two sources of, in a sense, wisdom, if you will, in the world. Or as you go on to read... You know what? Let's go back to that passage. Go back to 1 John, if you will, for a moment. 1 John, chapter 4. (laughs) Remember when I said we were going to speed things up? (laughs) Oh, well. Oh, well. All right. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 1. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, this verse we looked at last week, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ, who has come in the flesh, is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but the spirit of the Antichrist. Alright? Which you have heard is coming, and now notice this, And now is already in the world. See, even right now, the spiritual foundation for the Antichrist is already being laid in this world. It's already here. The Antichrist has not come on the scene yet, but the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. Because there's so much false teaching and false doctrine, and Satan is laying the groundwork for the ascension of the Antichrist. But, in case... The people who begin to read this begin to get fearful and full of anxiety. Remember, throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus says, you have nothing to fear. Why? Well, here's another reason why. Verse 4 of 1 John 4. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, speaking of these false teachers, because the one who is in you, God, is greater than the one who is in the world, Satan. Now let me go on because I'm going to come back to that. They are from the world, speaking of these false teachers. Therefore, they speak from the world's perspective and the world listens to them. We are from God and the person who knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And here's the two extremes, the end of verse 6. By this we know the spirit of truth, there's the one side, and the spirit of deceit which is the other side. And what's the Bible say about Satan? He is the father of lies. And what's going to be one of the great platforms of the Antichrist? He is going to be a master deceiver. And what did we see last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? That not only does Satan come to us as an angel of light, but his ministers come to us as ministers of righteousness. Satan is the great deceiver. And that's part of the reason why we've got to know the Word of God and be in touch with the Word of God. But we don't need to be afraid. Because in 1 John 4, 4, one of the great promises of God is that as great as Satan is, and we do not, we do not dismiss Satan's power. Satan is much more powerful than we are. Any demon is much more powerful than we are. Therefore, we, you know, we just can't you know, go willy-nilly, you know... Uh, confronting demons and Satan. That's way beyond our realm. But compared to God, they're nothing. All God has to do is speak a word and they're gone. I mean, the Bible, later on we're going to learn in the book of Revelation, when God wants Satan bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years during his millennial reign on earth, he just sends a few angels and binds him up and throws him in there. Because for God, Satan, as powerful he is, is nothing in comparison with God. Remember, Satan was a created being. The demons were created beings. God is the creator. 
totally separate from everything else that he created. He is the Almighty. Nothing is more powerful than him. And you have him living within you. Therefore, there is nothing in this world that Satan or any demon or any antichrist or false teacher can throw at you that God has not equipped you to handle and stand up against because he himself lives within you. And greater is he in you than he that is in the world. You remember that tomorrow when you go out into this world. Alright? You've got God on your side. Alright? And if God be for us, what did Paul say? Who can be against us? Amen. Oh, good. That's good. All right. Let's go back to Revelation. Man, you guys are like that church I was preaching at one time, the Shekinah Glory Baptist Church. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm telling you, if you've never had a chance to, as a pastor to preach in an all-black church, oh, my goodness. They talk, they talk back to you as you're speaking. You know? yeah. It's a whole different ballgame there. And if you don't preach for at least an hour and a half, they're, they're upset. So, you know, you start to sit down after your normal half an hour, and you're like, whoa, and then you got to go back and start all over. And you, you better have a lot of material when you preach there, you know? That's good. That's good. I'm used to that. All right. Back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. So, one of the other things I want to point out is this. In verse 10, Jesus then says to them, in spite of the fact that these People are slandering you. Do not be afraid. Literally, in the original language, it says, fear nothing. Fear nothing. Wow. Again, you know, we live in a world of fear and people who are trapped by fear, people who live in fear, and Jesus is saying, you don't have to be afraid because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And I'm in control. I'm the glorified Christ. And then he goes on to say, do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so you may be tested, and you will experience suffering for ten days. Remain faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown that is life itself. Jesus is saying something here that's very important. First of all, he's saying to them, I know what's coming even before it comes. Because remember, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I know what's coming in your life before it comes. And every once in a while, for whatever reason, in his wisdom, he sort of warns us about what's coming before it, coming, before it comes so that as we're going through it, it's like, you know what, God, that's actually, even though I'm going through a tremendous struggle, I know that you knew that I was going through this because you prepared me ahead of time. I've talked to Christians, and I went through it myself, and it doesn't happen very often, but where I really believe God prepared me for some really tough thing that was going to come into my life ahead of time and gave me the grace even up front. I, I will never forget going back to my father. My father had went into the hospital because he knew, we all knew something was wrong. And that day all the test results were coming back and they were going to tell my father exactly you know, what was going on. And as I was walking down to his room by myself, my mother had already gotten there, I really believe that God spoke to me and he prepared me that I was going to hear the word terminal cancer. And that he was preparing me ahead of time to hear that news. And I've talked to other Christians who said, you know, Jeff, before I ever went to that doctor, it was God prepared me. I knew what the news was going to be. It was bad, but, but he prepared me. And, and the reason that is true sometimes is because God wants to assure us that I know what you're going to face, and it's bad, but remember, I know what you're going to face, and I'm going to be there with you. I'm not necessarily preventing that negative circumstance from happening to you, but I am assuring you that I know about it completely, and I will be there with you through the entire thing. Because as we know, the Bible teaches, God does not necessarily prevent us from from experiencing negative circumstances, but God does promise that he will be there with us to help us through that circumstance. And that's what he's saying to the church at Smyrna. Don't be afraid. Fear nothing. I know what you're going to go through. And then notice in verse 10, he says, the devil. Now, the devil didn't actually come down and throw them into prison. Human beings did. But here again, Jesus is reminding them about the motivating power that was working behind the scene in people's lives. They were actually being, again, Satan's instruments. The people who were going to throw these people from the church at Smyrna into prison were just Satan's instruments. 
The devil was behind it. And it reminds us of the passage in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says what? He says, you and I do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual powers that we do not see, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Read it in Ephesians chapter 6. You know, a lot of times we think, you know, we're struggling and we're wrestling with people. God says, no, no, there's always spiritual motivation and spiritual powers behind it. And those powers can either be traced back to Satan or they can be traced back to God. Now, that doesn't mean it absolves us of that responsibility. We're responsible for it because we've opened ourselves up. In other words, those who were instruments of Satan had opened themselves up. I think several weeks ago or last semester we were studying Philippians. Somebody asked me about Judas. Did Judas, that uh, was you. To me, Judas, now I remember it. It's like God said, it was her, okay? Duh. Yeah, see, God remembered you even though I didn't. Um, that's one of those instant, you know. Uh, if you see sparks fly sometimes, it's just, God's trying to work there with me a little bit. He doesn't have a lot to work with up there. Uh, but I believe that Judas had opened himself up to Satan. He opened himself up. It wasn't that he didn't have a choice, but he opened himself up, and because he opened himself up, boom, he was right there. You know, he was in. And that's why we have to be careful. You and I cannot let Satan get a foothold in our life. That's why Paul says we as the church cannot be ignorant of his schemes or his devices. We have to be, we have to be aware of how he operates. Now, that doesn't mean we study Satanism. That means we study the Bible, because the Bible is all we need to stand against Satan. It's all we need, okay? But we need to study the Word of God so that we know how He operates in order that we not allow Him to get a foothold in our life. In fact, in the context of when Paul says that, don't be ignorant of how Satan schemes and his devices, he was speaking to the church at Corinth about not forgiving each other. And what he was saying is, don't you realize that if you don't forgive each other, you're giving Satan a foothold into that church and into those relationships where he will get in and he'll cause disunity and disruption and you all will begin to bite and devour each other and consume each other? You've got to love each other. And you've got to allow your love to cover a multitude of sins. And, and you've got to have a fervent love, a long-fused love, if you will, you see. And, and so he says, don't be ignorant of how Satan tries to get a foothold in your life. Be a forgiver. That's one way Satan will try to get into your life. And again, we learn that from the Word of God. Let me go on here for just a moment, and I'm going to open it up for the last part of... Well, I guess we're only going to get through one more church tonight, aren't we? That's all right. If we're still in Revelation two years from now, we're going to get through this book. All right. Uh, let's see. He says at the end of verse 10, Remain faithful even to the point of death. In other words, some of you are probably going to be martyred. Some of you are going to even give up your life. But he promises, I'll give you a crown that is life itself. And the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. Now again, the second death, if you study the book of Revelation, is eternal separation from God. And Jesus simply says, the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ will never suffer the second death. I look at it this way. This is how... I can keep it straight. If you have two birthdays, you only have one death day. Okay? If you were born physically and then you were born again spiritually, you only die once, the physical death. If you only have one birthday, the physical birthday, but you don't have a spiritual birthday, then you die twice. You die a physical death and you die a spiritual death called the second death. So born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You can remember that. Right? If I can remember that, you can remember that. But that's a good way to think about it. The second death is what is described in the Bible as eternal separation from God. And he says, you won't suffer that. Okay? You will be with me. In fact, if you go down to the next church, I just want to pick it up here a little bit as we flow into next week. This next church, Pergamum, is an interesting church as well because it was talking about Satanism. The church at Pergamum was the very center of Satanic worship at that time in history. In fact, you'll notice in verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Ooh, how'd you like to live there? 
I wonder where Jesus thinks Satan's throne is today on the earth. That would be, well, we're not going to get into that. Some of you probably all have cities around the world or in the United States you probably throw out there. Yet notice, he says, yet you continue to cling to my name and you've not denied your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed in your city, again, where Satan lives. In other words, so Antipas actually died for, again, for the cause of Christ. And we're going to see in that message to Pergamum how, again, he's trying to strengthen the church. And he's commending them for many good things. But the church at Pergamum, unlike the church at Smyrna, there's some things that need correcting there in order for them to continue to burn brightly with the Lord. Now, I'm going to leave it open for a minute of comments, but I just want to remind you this. Remember, Smyrna, crushing pressure, myrrh, brought out the best in them, not the worst in them. And that's what God's looking for us. He's allowing that crushing pressure for a reason, and the reason is to take us further than we ever thought we could go. We don't have to be afraid. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. We just need to be faithful to him no matter what happens and realize he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who's been dead and is back to life again. And we just put it in his hands and he can handle it. He can deal with it. All right. Yes. Jeff, is there any significance to being persecuted for them being persecuted for 10 days versus 7 or 14 or whatever? I don't think so. The only significance I see there, and that's a good question, is I think it was just Jesus' way of saying it's going to be a temporary thing. It's going to be hard for 10 days, but realize, especially for those of you that are martyred, 10 days from now you're going to be in glory. In fact, do you have just a second? It's only 10 to late. Let me take you to another passage, please. I just thought of this. Actually, God just threw it, in, threw it into my head. You see him open up my head there and throw it in? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is good. you got to leave with this. This is good. Because this goes along exactly with what we're talking about here. Well, you want to talk about another couple. Isn't it interesting? We, we were in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Here it's 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. And then I know I have a couple more questions or comments, and I'll get to those. Notice what Paul says here. And he could be saying this to the church at Smyrna, or he could be saying this to us. Therefore, we do not despair, even if our physical body is wearing away. Whoa. (laughs) Well, mine is more than yours, but anyway. And our inner person is being renewed, though, day by day. You see, again... Man looks at the outward appearance, and we look at the body and how it's wearing away, but God's looking at how strong is the inner man. And not that we shouldn't take care of our bodies. We should, okay? It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But God says, also, be as strong internally, spiritually on the inside. That's the real you. This this is just a shell that houses the real you. It's going to wear out one day, but that's never going to wear out. In fact, that can get stronger and stronger and stronger throughout your life. For our momentary talking about 10 days even, our momentary, verse 17, light suffering, and the reason he uses the word light there is because he's comparing it with eternity. Our light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You see what he's doing here? He's saying no matter what we suffer here, no matter how long we suffer here, compared to eternity in the scales of things, it's light. It's just momentary. Because we're talking about eternal Things. And we're talking about glory. Because, verse 18, we are not to be looking at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen, tying into even that concept about where our focus is, is it on eternal investments and riches or is it on temporary things? For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Wow. Look at the eternal things. Look at the things that you cannot see, but yet you know they're there. You know they're there. Let me give you a verse, 1 Peter 1.13. Set your hope fully upon the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not, not mostly, not partly. Set your hope fully, completely, on the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13. What an awesome, awesome verse. Someday I'm going to get the opportunity to speak on that verse, just that one verse. And I'm going to take the opportunity to do that because that's just an unbelievable verse. Yes? 
Okay, are they talking about the throne? Are you talking about the throne of Satan, literally or figuratively? Like, is the throne of God? Figuratively. Figuratively. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. It was his base of operations. It was a place where Satanism was so prominent and where Satanism was just embedded there. Yeah. Yeah. In the church or in the city? In the city. In the city. Although, as we're going to see next week, some people in the church had been influenced by the city. Yeah. Which always we have to be careful of. By the way, for the and again, I, I I caution you, do not dabble into a study of Satanism or the occult or any of that. The Bible warns against it, and I have seen so many even Christians over the years who somehow thought it was their duty or whatever to dabble in understanding all that, and they got sucked into it. And it destroyed their life. The word occult literally means hidden. That's what the word occult means, hidden. And that's the way Satan wants to keep it. He wants to keep all the, these wicked, evil things that really happen underneath the surface. He wants to keep that hidden until a certain time. And uh, God wants us not to be involved with that in any way. All we need is right here in our hands. We don't need to... You don't need to purchase uh, Vey's satanic Bible or anything like that and get involved with that stuff. That stuff is dangerous. And again, what you're doing by dabbling in that, and if you know of people who are, again, what you're doing, you're opening up a foothold for Satan to get in and to begin to work on your mind and in your heart. It's very, very dangerous. I heard uh, Harry Potter kind of on the lines, but in an innocent way. What's your take on that? <laughs> oh boy I'll, I'll be honest with you and this is just this has been my philosophy for 22 years of sharing the word of God I usually don't name names or make applications like that I share the word of God and I let you who hear the word of God make those applications yourself because I'm afraid that sometimes by naming certain things and whatever, that I'm crossing over to something that I'm really not qualified to speak on. And so I'm very careful about it. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I, I, just, I would be very wary of making a judgment and being any kind of an influence one way or the other on that. I will say this. I think we need to be very careful of things. Because I think, again, remember as we read last week or we studied last week, Satan can come at us like a minister of righteousness and, and something that's very good, but just put enough error in there to make us susceptible to it. Like I shared, what's more dangerous, a gallon of milk sitting on a shelf with a couple drops of poison in it, or this big glass container that's got this skull and crossbones that says poison, danger? Well, obviously, the, the milk with a couple drops of poison. And that's the way Satan operates. He doesn't come at us like, I'm Satan and I'm here to destroy. It's if I'm coming to you when it looks pretty good, and I'm just going to put a few drops of something bad in there and, and get you sucked in. Yes? Can you repeat what you said about that? Yeah. About the forces or slander. Yeah, I think anytime we're involved with slander, and the devil is the slanderer, and we go around gossiping in that, we're taking on more the character of Satan than we are the character of God. You know. And so even as a believer in Jesus Christ, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but we can become, in a sense, an instrument of Satan. Because we're, we're doing damage rather than building up the church or building up other people. We're actually being part of destroying other people and we've got to be careful that we don't lend ourselves to, to, to Satan to use, but that we offer ourselves to God to use. So in real life, real life situations and work situations, everybody's encountered you know, just awful, awful things and backstabbing. Oh. Things that you just don't, you know, you don't even want to partake in. Right. And you said that you, no matter what, you have to forgive and, and love. And so no matter what's going on around you, Christian and not to get sucked into it. Right. You have to well, give I, it. No, I think that, in other words, what I if I'm around gossip and somebody even comes to me and they start telling me something about it, I say, look, I don't want to hear that, okay? 
So I try to just cut it off right there, to not even be a part of it. Okay. Now, if, if somebody, and I try to be an example of, again, yeah, love in the office or with people that I'm working with or whatever. Now, if, if, if somebody is slandering other people and gossiping about it, I don't think it's wrong for a Christian to confront them about it. I don't think that's being unloving. I think you go in the spirit of love, and you speak the truth in love, but you say, can I talk to you about this? I really think you're hurting people by behaving that way rather than building them up. And don't you think that our, our office or whatever would be you know, a much more pleasant place to work and there wouldn't be all this tension and all this whatever if you just, you know. So I don't think that's being unloving. I don't, I'm not saying don't take a stand against it, but I think we need to be an example of love and forgiveness. Um, you know, in the workplace and try to be an instrument that tries to keep all that down because we know, like you said, that's the way the world operates. The world tries to put other people down in order to make themselves look good. I mean, that's just the common thing where God says just the opposite. We shouldn't try to put other people down to make ourselves look good. That's, that's not what this world is all about. But that's the way the world is going to operate and that's what Satan tries to do. Yeah, and we just need to try to not be a part of that as much as possible. But yeah, you're right. It happens. It happens. Not that you all have ever dealt with that. <laughs> Never had anybody talk about you or gossip about you or slander or whatever. But we do. We have to be, because it, it's easy to get sucked in, boy. You know, and sometimes, I'll just say this, sometimes even well-meaning believers in Christ come at it sort of like, can I share a prayer request with you? Yeah. And then they go into this really negative story about this person. It's like, oh, you sucked me in before I realized it. You know, we got to be careful about that. That's still gossip, you see. So anyway, that's a whole nother thing. Guys, you're great, I'm telling you. But keep me in your prayers. Thank you, thank you. Lord gets the glory. Really, if you guys think about it, Saturday, I think at 2 o'clock is the service. If around then you could be praying for me and the family, I really want the Lord to use that message. And then Sunday morning, be praying for me too. All right? Let's pray, and then I'll let you go. Father, thank you again for your word. And Lord, we know that, that uh, you have given us your word as the church to, again, uh, strengthen us to give us the wisdom that we need in order to navigate through life, to give us the encouragement and the refreshment we need to rise above the circumstances of life. And Father, I pray once again that you would just bless these folks who've come out again this Tuesday. Just go with them the rest of this week. And may they even be able to use and apply some of the things we've talked about even tonight to their walk with you throughout the rest of this week. Thank you again, Lord, uh, for this group, and just take us all home safely tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're great.